So, Luke, you've teed up this next guest, who is yeah. uh, Brett Sargent, is his name. So, Brett is an individual who I had a, uh, I guess, an understanding of or knowledge of for many years. You know, he was very, very senior at Maryvale when I was at Keystone, and obviously. Um, attended a lot of events together, Grand Prix in Melbourne, those kind of things separately, but you know, at the same time. Um, and, and we never really had much interaction, to be honest, but he was always, you know, I'd always known of him. Mm, most people um, Brett, that's for sure. Yeah, and heard, you know, about his approach to doing business and his focus around sort of leadership and, and a few other bits and pieces. And it wasn't until maybe, call it 12 months ago, I guess, that we spoke professionally. Yeah. Um, and we we're actually a part of the process for him moving into his role um, at Colonial Leisure Group. Where he's now um, Yep. Whereas now CEO, yes. So um, I guess our relationship has, has um, changed significantly over time, and, and you know, we sit, we've sat down and had beers, and I've just always found him to be someone who, uh, yeah, he has a very, um, just a very strong approach to hospitality, um, and, and and in particular his focus around quality, I think, is is what is consistent across the different jobs that he's had. Um, so just to go through them, he was a, a, a state or an area manager with ALH before going to Maryvale. He was there for maybe nine years, um, ended up finishing up there as the COO. Um, so right through the formative years of the Maryvale business, um, then went to event hospitality and entertainment, where he's the director of hospitality. And that's, I think, in the range of maybe 60 hotels, you know, eat, um, mm. QT, Ridges, Atura, but then all of the event cinemas, which is a huge hospitality business that people just probably don't clock because it's more cinemas, but um, huge business. And now he's in CLG. So um, always running large teams, large businesses, and um, I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. And building a strong character, having dealt with some strong personalities, no doubt. Yeah. Let's get him on. Um, so, Brett, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Pleasure to have you here. Um, we're in the uh, private dining room at Bistro Moncur, so there's a little bit of traffic noise going on outside. Busy Friday morning. But, um, mate, I thought we'd start with, uh, I guess, where you started as a, as a kid, potentially, depending how far back you want to go. But um, I understand you were a pretty exceptional fast bowler in your time. Is that correct? I was Okay. Okay, I was told that by you that you were exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been Steve Howe told me that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I played some great cricket for 10 years. Yeah, right. Yeah, at Richmond in Melbourne. Yeah. yeah. Grew up in Melbourne. Grew up in Melbourne, uh, eastern suburbs, way out in Vermont South. Uh, um, went to public school. Um, started working um, just casually in bars so I, so I could continue to play cricket with aspirations of doing something <laughs> in a baggy green which never came to fruition but um, uh, bought the first home in North Fitzroy when I was about 21. Yeah right. So that um, led to more inner city living as, mm. a, as a young man. Yeah. What, what was your first job? Which, which pub? First job or first pub? First pub that you worked. First, first hospitality job. First pub was a glassy at the yeah. Mitchum Hotel. The Richmond Hotel. Mitchum. 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 Right. You know Mitchum. Well, I, my uh, godmother um, lives in Vermont South, as it turns oh, out. Oh, yeah. Well, there you and go. My, my, I think my parents, when they came to Australia, spent a bit of time in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so I'm loosely familiar with it. Yeah. More more familiar with North Fitzroy at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and was it straight away that you kind of realised that your hospitality was, I guess... No, I don't think so. No? no, I think I just did it as a... Uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I worked it so I could play cricket, but mm. I was always frustrated with the way in which the businesses were being run and, and no desire to um, improve customer experience or make it memorable for anyone. It was just, you know... It was a, there was a lot of gaming back then. Yeah. Gaming, beer, really ordinary bistro food. Um, so not much has changed. A lot of pubs. N- not not, <laughs> not not by those people. No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, and, and I think it was uh, when I was probably twenty five and and really ruined my body and injured myself. That <laughs> yeah. I thought I'd better try something else. So <laughs> I got given my first hotel, which was. Yeah, right. uh, Cherry Hill Tavern in East Doncaster. Yeah. Yeah. 
which became a very successful live live venue. Yeah, it right. was a corner pub and we had a great band that played on a Thursday night and um, executed it really well. We had a great team, um, created a great vibe, ended up bashing out walls to make the bar bigger um, and this wall moved three times in 12 months where we lost a complete bistro but uh, it made sense <laughs> because... Now it's doing numbers that you know we could never make up in a in a family bistro. So, yeah, that was very, very yeah. rewarding as a first pub. Yeah. yeah, right. And so, was there anything in your upbringing that you think lent towards led you towards hospitality, or was it purely, I guess, a matter of circumstance? Um, if I was to put my finger on it, I'd say my parents always threw a great dinner party. Yeah, right. And I remember um, the effort that went into. Um, setting a scene for mm. guests to walk into. You know, really humble home, but the effort that went into the cooking, the effort that went into the music, the effort that went into you know, the cleanliness of the house, and I suppose cleanliness is something that's really big in my life. And yeah. now living with a German wife, it's become <laughs> even more important. Um, so that probably had a lot to do with it, yeah, mm. just the way in which they presented themselves, the house, the product that landed on the table. Yeah, yeah. it's probably an inspiration. And why were they such great hosts? Like, was the, what was their story then? Like, like where, does that, where did that come from? It's a good question. Um, I don't recall my grandmother much, but my mother's mother. So my mother is an identical twin, and I mean identical twin, <laughs> and they are wonderful cooks. And their mother was an amazing mm. cook back in, oh, God. Some time ago. A long time ago yeah. when, when people weren't good cooks. Yeah. So that so was, you know, that um, that love of food has probably, you know, gone on generation to generation, yeah. Yeah. So you dined, and I might get this wrong, in every hatted restaurant or every three-hatted restaurant in Melbourne by the time you were 18, is that correct? Yeah, before I turned 19, yeah. I had right. no interest in... I always had girlfriends and some right. wonderful girlfriends. And I remember... <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. <laughs> yeah. Another time when there was... A different song. podcast. Yeah, 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 different podcast. Um, and I, I don't know, I was not into nightclubs. I love the idea of taking uh, a, a young lady out to beautiful romantic dinner. So I remember the restaurants from back then. It was Stephanie's, Brown's, Mietta's... Um, Fanny's, all, all very weird names back then. But, yeah. But they were beautiful sort of old Victorian double-storey homes, a lot of them, or, right. or double-storey terrace homes, and they had these beautiful, not too dissimilar rooms to these, but mm. you know, all sorts of lynches, which is now, uh, what's that in, um, which was renowned for that, they were the first that had the child ban. Do you remember that? Had the what? No, no children. Oh, right. They banned the children. Nobody in, in cots allowed in the, in the restaurant because it spoiled the rest of the customer experience. But all those restaurants were, were really special mm. and some of my fondest memories still. I still remember my first dish at Stephanie's. That was the first one I went to. I still remember it. What was like, it? It was a rabbit almond pie with a whole grain mustard on top and it was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, right. I could go on now. <laughs> it was so good. I'll ask the guys if we can whip yeah. one up for you. Very similar. Yeah. <laughs> the um, uh, the reason I guess I go down this path is because obviously knowing who you are now, I didn't know you back then. There is a real um, there's a consistency around sort of excellence and quality yeah. in your background, um, and you know maybe that comes from your love of competitive sports. Um, I think if you if you try to be um, effective or to a certain level in sport, that takes a really specific type of mindset. Mm. And I, I think there's a lot of similarities there between the way you would approach your professional life as opposed to a sporting life. Like, that, that must have started pretty early. If you were that, or maybe I'm misinterpreting and the three-hat restaurants were about impressing women more so than being exposed to excellence. But I think there's... there's yeah, there's there was a, always a desire for there. excellence. Yeah. Um, my father would tell you that, you know... I loved brands as a kid. I was always equality was always important. Right. Yeah. It, it, whatever it is, quality is important. Mm. Whereas the fabrics, whereas the fabric on my uh, bed linen. Yeah. I'm anal about any just about everything. Really? So, <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm a complete nutter. So right. I don't know how else to put that. But um, quality is really 
really important in, yeah. in, in just about everything that I do in my life, you know. I've got a fetish with lawn. That was one of my notes here. Yeah. I, actually, Brett, I was working with Brett um, before CLG and uh, I think on your profile you had the type of, um, he's got the type of blade that he uses on his uh, lawnmower to cut his grass listed on his um, personal professional Yeah, it's profile. the same as they use on Augusta National. Right. So I thought, and the only grass I have is my nature strip. So I thought it was really important to have like a $10,000 cylinder mower that has 11 reels on it. So it has patterns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like. Your nature strip has patterns? Oh, yeah, pattern cut. Absolutely. It's rather funny. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yes, yeah, a complete nutter when it comes to quality, and yeah, I think it's it's always been the case. If you do it, you do it well. Yeah, otherwise, just don't do it. And so, professionally, then first step was how, how far into your I guess your working life was ALH? Was that fairly immediate for you? Yeah, well, so the Mitchell Hotel ALH. Yeah, yeah, that okay. was ALH. Not that oh, under under many different banners. I think in the first ten years it went under five or six banners, but, right. yeah, ostensibly the same group for probably 15 years. Yeah. And I started it. Well, the first seven was playing cricket and just bumming around, really. Yeah. Um, then running pubs, which I absolutely love because you put your mark on it. And, mm. again, yeah, competitive, um, and it was important that the result was fantastic. It was important what the customers thought and it was really important to me the way in which the venue looked yeah. um, and how proud the team were about what they were delivering. Uh, they were probably my motivators. I think I ran three or four, probably four pubs for ALH and the last one was particularly successful. It was one that had, they'd spent a lot of money on um, that had, had died had it right. gone backwards after about $12 million investment. So, and it was just so many simple things wrong there that you mm. know, it, was, it was really easy to turn around and, and that's what got me a uh, gig looking after half of the New South Wales portfolio. Yeah. And um, So that was what the catalyst for the move to Sydney? Yeah, that was yeah. it. And a woman again. Yep. Right. Yep. But get away from that. Okay. The woman I went, yeah, get All right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, so Sydney for the next 20 years or so. Yeah. And then from ALH into Maryvale? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And in, because you you obviously finished up there as COO. Yeah. Correct. Um, Before that, though, you went in as a group GM, was the initial title? Yeah, I think it was group general manager, ostensibly the same role, um, just as the group got bigger. I think it was uh, probably more a recognition thing of yeah of creating some more titles yeah okay a few and hours. then <laughs> we'll come back to that then EVT yeah event for a couple of years yeah yeah which was really um, it was a great learning curve because it was a very, it was a very different industry and whilst we say it's still you know it's still hospitality and entertainment the cinema world was a really fascinating world to mm. work in um, and the hotel world and and the interesting part about that was moving into that world from Maryvale, I naturally thought my interests would be the hotel side. Yeah. Um, and maybe the style of hotel that event have it, it wasn't really my, um, my forte, but um, the cinemas... I didn't think there'd be of any interest, but, you know, there was so... It was a great culture, the cinema side of the event business. The um, the people were great. Um, their pride was something that was really fascinating, how proud yeah, right. that team are, right down to the yeah, front, of, front of house, front counter, candy store staff. They're really proud, and um, it was great to be a part of. And I got some great projects to complete there, which was... Um, which was challenging because it's something I'd never done, but it was mm. also extremely rewarding to see that, again, bring some quality mm. um, to an area in which you know very little about and, and results, you know, happened. What, what projects were they? <laughs> it was creating a few of our... Well, the bigger project was um, redesigning their retail experience. So they've got a, a brand called Scoop Alley, which is you probably would have seen them in all the event cinemas, um, and this was more about how do we... It's all about spend per head, but how do you get people to actually cross that threshold 
into the retail space. And that's the first hurdle they have. And that was about physical barriers first, but also creating this really impressive retail presence. And they were all shop fronts. So we created our own popcorn brand that it looked like uh, it was probably a bit of a knockoff of something in Chicago, but um, <laughs> never be too proud to be first to be second, I always oh, remember. Great, 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 great. <laughs> yeah. So... It was a great brand. The the store designs were fantastic. The layouts were great. You knew the customer journey was easy. You knew where you were heading. You know, each each hero item had its own shop front. Chop tops, you know, post mix, frozen, popcorn. They all yeah. had their own yeah. unique um, shop front, and, and you walk through it was just and they, and they, I think there's only two complete, but they're from what the team tell me they they are miles ahead of the rest of the portfolio, so it's rewarding. It's a shame I didn't get to see the end of it, mm. um, but yeah, no, great projects. Where did the pride come from? Do you think in that business? It's always good to go. Yeah, it's a good question. I, um, I never put my finger on it. Yeah, right. No. Um, Were you there post Dave Sergeant or? Pre. I was with David for about six months. Yeah. Because it's like interesting just hearing you describe that journey uh, yeah. uh, on the retail and hearing Dave when he spoke about the QT brand, uh, yeah. which was something close to his Very close. heart. And, yeah. uh, and, um, and I uh, remember sitting in the hotel conference, Ahis, listening to him speak, and I thought, we could pick you up and put you into an arts and culture theatre Yes. Conference. And people would think there would be, it would, it would resonate because he had this vision of producing a show from the moment you stepped onto the curb and were greeted into the theatre or the atmosphere in the lobby um, environments of these QT hotels often. Uh, Melbourne's a great example. And then, you know, on, on and out throughout that journey. But I um, can recall, you know, it's interesting to me hearing the your, your description of that um, things popping at you it's kind of a bit similar to me yeah well I suppose it is because it's you know David was very yeah very showbiz Mm. Dave yeah Yeah, he was you know I was probably fortunate enough to get David I think David he employed me and and then um I think I've been there two months he gave me a call he said I just want to tell you firsthand you know I've just resigned and retiring it's like oh okay well Great working with you. <laughs> but I think in some respects I was quite fortunate because I think he had a bit of a nasty sting, David. It's what, what the whole team, I never got to see it because he was very chilled yeah, for his yeah. last six months. But it was great to work with David. Yeah. Um, and you're right, very, very different artistic, um, somewhat crazy sort of vision on where he was taking some of those brands and been very, very successful in doing yeah. so. And Yeah. No, he, he was, was a lot of fun to work with. But it's all so easy. If you gotta do is try. All you gotta do is And and then sort of coming from there into your current role, yeah. colonial, like Talk to us a little bit about that in terms of, you know, you've arrived into that business which is diverse and where, where are you taking it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so Colonial is the pub group of, of Morris Group, which is the overarching they have so much more, um, owned by Chris Morris, a lovely man. Um, again, a, a family business and a really beautiful, genuine family. Um, got a lot of great properties, great pubs, um, that were struggling, and there's a lot to to get right there. Starting with the people, um, a lot of kids running pubs that has probably led to its underperformance, which is why um, there's a new team in there trying to direct it to somewhere um, really promising and rewarding. But um, look, certainly growth is is on the cards. Um, hopefully, we sign one today. Yeah, right. right. Um, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Melbourne. can't say, right. Melbourne, yeah, I'd love to have a couple of... Look, given it's a national business, obviously having um, a footprint in each state's important. Yeah. So I'd love to have three or more in Brisbane and three or more in Sydney. It allows us to you know, 
uh, recruits and really senior people yeah. to look over those states that starts to create that you know talent pool that we need to, mm. to grow and um, uh, we fortunate enough uh, to make a couple of changes at Newtown and the young the young man that's looking after Newtown's really turned around and yeah, good. and Brisbane that was also a bit of a, a headache is heading in the right direction so at least those two states that are only, you know, represented with one pub mm. are heading in the right direction because it, it means that um, we're not certainly looking to offload interstate venues. We, um, we could jump into this now, into Colonial. Um, it's actually, it's quite different to Maryvale ALH, but combined I think you take some similarities out of each of them in, you know, national business like ALH, no, not the same scale, obviously. Yep. But probably, you know, a lot of general punters don't really know about ALH. It's not a brand that has sat out there as prominently as Maryvale. Colonial's probably similar to more similar to ALH than Maryvale, obviously. Is that something that you see changing? Is that that something you would like to change? Yeah, look, interesting you say that because I think in 07 when I was at Maryvale, it was... It was was a house of brands and and I remember... Mm. um, Tackling that, and and we would debate that often about yeah. is it about the individual venues? What are we promoting here? And I think once the business got to a point where it had one, it had scale, but two, Maryvale name actually stood for something. Yeah. You know, you could consistently say that all of the properties, regardless if they're playing in a six dollar schnitzel or whether they're playing in a you know level six at Ivy, they all stood for the best of what they did in that category. So yeah. um, it wasn't a um, we didn't go out there and say it's time to make it a branded house. Um, it just happened mm. as the business grew and it stood for something and, and then we embraced it and, and moved yeah. with that. But um, yeah, CLG, yeah, again, no, probably more known for its properties. You know, it's got some iconic Melbourne properties yeah. and it plays in so many different fields as well, mm. from Portsy Hotel, which is, you know, it's just a cracking pub, yeah. um, undergone, you know, significant renovation last year. So it's gone from an iconic location um, to us wanting and and taking steps to make an iconic venue, yeah. you know, a world-class beachside venue, um, and we're getting there. Mm. Um, and then you go to Bimbo, Deluxe or Lucky Cock where you've got, you know, just wacky out there entertainment-driven mm. venues. So, they, But they're all prominent. Yeah. They're all prominent in their own name. But, yes, it would be great um, once we've got a little, little bit more scale and our performance has improved and our team has improved that we're known as... You know, the Colonial Leisure Group, which, you know, has a real employer of choice. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting just this uh, discussion about uh, the hospitality group brand and what it does because tracing the history of Maryvale, you know, we're friends with um, Justine at Solitel. One of the things that it definitely does is create, speak to your employment brand. Mm. Like, let's leave aside the consumer, like that may have a place yeah. there as well, but it is, um, you know... Uh, in, in terms of what you're describing, um, Maryvale and now over at um, CLG, as you build scale, it means that people see see you as a good place to work and you yeah. can upgrade your talent pool, which um, as I think we would all universally agree, without talent you go nowhere fast. Absolutely. And, yeah. 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 And how's that been then sort of um, uh, as you're going through that process uh, and you've obviously got a really solid reputation anyway, but um, people drifting into the business now into key roles? Is that sort yeah, of- yeah, there's, there has been significant change in, well, we're coming up to six months. Um, there's been change at our general manager manager's level, I think. Probably half the general managers have, have changed over and, look, some of those people have stayed with us, um, but they're just not at the level to be adequately, you know, leading teams and running venues. And, you know, it's it's important that you do that in a manner where you're really open and honest about what's expected and what's needed, um, give them the opportunity to stay in the business and learn. And, and most of them are still in our business, um, but not at the ultimate capacity of running those places. Um, Perth has been an interesting one for us, um, you know, 
that tyranny of distance makes it pretty difficult to stay close. So it's important to put someone in a very senior role over there. Mm. Um, she's got a wonderful background of group operations and some great venues over there. She's been with us for a couple of months. Um, yeah, so just bringing that talent on is important. Nurturing it and, and, and creating a real culture of learning is important. And we've... Um, We've been lucky enough to, to team up again with um, with Gary Dooley, who's our leadership consultant. So we do some pretty um, intense leadership training for the guys, um, and we work pr- we work very hard on instilling, you know, a a really clear purpose, simple, clear purpose, no rubbish mission statements and God knows what else. Really clear purpose with some expected behaviour that um, is linked directly with performance. So. And that's the important bit to be coaching those kids is, you know, it, when you start talking about values and and purposes, so many organisations have it up on the board and it's next to their computers and it means absolutely nothing. This is real. They created it themselves uh, and it's absolutely connected to us being a high-performing team. So if you behave like that, we will succeed. Yeah. Which is what we drive, you know, so heavily at Maryvale. I was going to bring that up because I've yeah. obviously never worked there but heard of it through people that I knew. It was maybe one of the long-lasting legacies of yours, of, of, of many obviously, but what did that look like in actual practice? Like how does that sort of come to life in the business? Well, I think um, it's not my place to talk about what they those behaviours specifically are, but I think um, what... what the legacy that you leave or, or the culture that you create is certainly that if I was to put my finger on it, that you give feedback to people for two reasons, because you really care about them and you want them to improve. And the change over a couple of years in being able to give people feedback or people's desire to get feedback mm. or, or seek it so they could improve was fantastic. Um, the desire around honesty and wanting to know how that their they were actually performing. Um, the honesty about how good we were today, Maryvale doesn't need to read reviews. They'll internally be way more critical on what they've delivered than anybody externally. Um, and that was certainly as an outcome of, mm. you know, some of that work we did. Um, and no excuses. You know, if you look to excuse or blame, then, you know, there wasn't a long life for you there. Mm. And when it came to a leadership team, you know, you behaved your way in or out. It was not, there was no titles. Titles meant nothing. You were voted in or out by, you know, a broader management team. Right. Whether you demonstrated what would actually drive success in the way you acted, that's how you got into the team. Did you find, because I guess, what, 2007? Yeah, 2007. To 2016? 16, I think, yeah. And even now you're employing that, so it's not all about Maryvale, but only means I'm more worried about the timeline, whether the talent market that you're dealing with then responded differently when you first started talking like that as to whether they do now. Because we see, like, you put downward pressure on talent in this market in a lot of situations, they'll just go, see you later, I'm, I'll go and find somewhere where I don't have so much pressure on myself. Yeah. Um, whereas I just wonder if that was the case long ago because some businesses would be worried that if they do manage people this way, um, they're, they're going to run the risk of losing them. and, and, and But, I mean, then you're losing a person who's not worth keeping, I guess, at the end of the day as a bit, well. So. A, a bit of both. And, mm. you, and you, certainly have to, um, you certainly have to create a safe environment to be doing so. Yeah. Uh, and it's not that simple. And, and a lot of um, certain personality profiles pick up on, you know, this is about honesty, I give feedback and, and they choose to do so before they actually have a relationship with someone. So there's a lot of coaching about how and when and 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 what level of relationship you need to have with people. Um, I wouldn't have thought that Maryvale lost anyone, you know, at a at a senior level that they didn't think um, was not the right fit for them. Yeah. Um, I think those that truly wanted to be the best version of themselves remained, um, and it did wonders for people that would hear about their leadership program and wanted to join the business who, yeah, I, I think what I learned out of it, the desire for individuals to learn was more than I thought existed in the workplace. Um, for external talent wanting to join 
the group yeah. because of what they'd heard about. Yeah. yeah. Right. Is this approach critical, do you think, to managing on scale? Because you Massively. each of these roles yes. that you've had have been, I don't know, hundreds to thousands of yeah. staff that you have to lead through other people, obviously. So Absolutely. Look, if, if you can be clear about, um, one, if you can be really clear on how you recruit, what's important, um, those things, you know, take time in an organisation to set um, some criteria about the, the ideal recruitment and yep. that's, um, that's something that we're working through at CLG at the moment. I think you know, previous businesses have done it well. Um, once you get to that point, um, if you understand that the blank canvas you're working with is, is a quality human being, has the right skills, got some great experience, um, has the intellect to learn and the desire to learn, then um, you create the framework in which they can they can confidently manage their team and understand mm. that they're leading in the right way. Um, that was probably the bit at Maryvale that was so um, exciting and rewarding to see. You could see individuals that had a desire to want to be great leaders um, and this just almost gave them a formula in which um, what would be recognised mm. was the what. Yeah, but what, the way they behaved would be recognised hey, and would also bring them ultimate success. Yeah. Sorry, but I had to ring your doorbell so late. But there's something bothering me. I really am sorry, but it just couldn't wait. Is there uh, so mate, question that comes up a lot on this podcast um, is around, I guess, the importance of customers uh, versus staff members and who you would rate as being the, the I guess, of most importance in the inner process. So do you have a, a firm opinion on that or any opinion on that? And has that sort of woven its way into the way that you, you lead teams? Yeah, no, no, yeah, it's a good question. Um, and even further today, I hate the question of who's your target market. <laughs> yeah. I hate it. Who's your target market? Well, it's everyone, you know. If, you, if you're good enough, mm. and, and particularly look at some of the really successful sites around town, it is everyone. It's everyone from an eight-year-old to an 80-year-old. But my answer to your question directly would be, yeah, it, it's it's the staff. You know, if 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 you're employing the right person, if they understand what's important and the way in which you want them to treat guests, mm. the rest looks after itself. You know, um, always talk about, you know, that that two-minute interaction at a bar. It's a relationship. It's not a transaction. Mm. You've got, you got a moment to make a relationship with somebody in two minutes. It's not a simple, I give you this and you give me that. But I, I firm believer if you get the team right, you get the people right and they understand what's important and they love what they do, then... You'll, get the, you'll make a happy customer. And another question, similar proposition in terms of comparing to potentially, not, I guess, competing, but um, different approaches. You are referred to as the rain man. Yeah, well, yes, I've been called that yeah. enough times, yeah. <laughs> because you have an incredible ability to remember numbers. I used to live with Mikey Enright and he used to tell me stories. This is when he was working at Mirabel with you and tell me stories about, you know, being uh, addressed on the GP of beverage beverage costs, you know, in a specific venue and being told he needed to come back to you in two weeks or three weeks' time and report on why that was the case and how it's been improved. And you would call him on the day three weeks later and say, the number was X, what is it now? Um, and just be able to rattle off numbers, um, you know, with, without any, any thought. You combine that with the focus around quality product, which can be competing. Yes. There are businesses that really struggle to do both well, but you seem to be able to do that. Similar to the question around customer or, um, or, or staff member first, where do you focus, what, what's the priority for you, the financials and the cost or the, the actual product and end result? I don't think there's not a one and a two. You can't no, separate them. No, not mutually exclusive. It's, no, it's, um, they've both got to be great. Yeah. I think the simple answer to that is 
and there are no excuses, they can't be great. Too often you hear, um, if I plate that and you want this level of um, excellence on a plate, then I can't do it for that. Well, how many suppliers have you talked to? How much work have you done to get the right price? How hard have you negotiated it? Um, how tight is your roster? Um, I'm not in two excuses, and I, yeah. you know, I, I think across our organisation, uh, the work that goes into labour management is nowhere near focused enough in 95% of the businesses across the country. Yeah, you know, we're the highest labour market in the world, mm. and still you walk into venues and see, you know, staff turning up an hour and a half before a shift, and whatever it may be. They've both got to be great. You've got to have your numbers in line and you've got to work hard at it. Mm. You know, you, you can't just rest on your laurels. There's always ways to improve margin, um, but it's how it's how hard and how willing you, you are to work to do that. The work you do up front is obviously very important in terms of supply management. I mean, that's another part of your reputation is the, um, the ability with which you negotiate uh, mm-hmm. in all facets, you know, I can attest to that personally. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, I, I can't. <laughs> hey, we'll have a chat after. The, um, what's your approach there in terms of finding solutions to work with suppliers? Do you take an approach where you like to do one big deal with, with one key supplier or do you think spreading the, um, the suite of suppliers keeps them competitive and it gives you more freedom around product or is it is it purely based on product line and, and I guess, what suits the venue? Um, the, I, I, I think negotiating with suppliers starts with a preparedness to be really honest and quite frank. Mm-hmm. Um, and my line is, you know, if you want to work with us, I'd love to have a relationship, love to be a key partner. It needs to land at the right price. Um, we will do everything we can to showcase your product, mm. but we expect you know the terms to be you know, attractive enough that, that we can be successful and grow, and continue to grow in what we we buy with you. And I think that's you know across the supply agreements that I've you know been fortunate enough to negotiate over the years. That's been the, and it's been the case, you know. Yeah. And, and I'd prefer that they spent their marketing dollars with us in showcasing their product. Than putting a billboard on a bus stop, and right. you know, and that's probably my tagline. Please don't spend it there. Give it to us. We'll execute it, and you'll get a far better return than you will on the back of a bus. Mm. Mm. You would have done some pretty big deals, deals in your time, I imagine. Yes, some very big deals. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, I got to reference another thing from your profile, but I mean, and we might jump back to Maryvale very slightly, and this is purely because I think. Um, we've not spoken to anyone else from that business on this podcast before. Yep. Um, and I guess what you achieved in that in your time there has to be acknowledged because it was the very much the formative years of that business. I would suggest they're my words. You don't have to be accused of them being yours. Great. Um, it, well, when you started versus the business yes. when you started versus the business when you finished were two yeah. very, very different things. Yeah. Um, Transformative, I would say, as opposed to formative. Yeah. Um, I guess what would you take away as being the thing that you're most proud of in that specific role? Uh, I think... Uh, holistically, I think it was successful from the cu- the customer got a great product. Yeah, um, I think we created a, a workforce that had enormous opportunity to become the best they could, go on and do anything they liked, um, and fiscally it was you know a very successful business. And uh, on the back of a lot of those initiatives, you know the two or three or four very big initiatives that we made over that period of time that, mm. that made it extremely profitable and and um, allowed it to grow so significantly. That, um, that That's probably how I'd, how I'd capture it, but I'm really proud of the team I left there yep. and I suppose how capable they individually are and collectively are and, you know, they could go and do whatever they chose to do now and, mm. and and a lot of that would be through you know some of the um, people programs that we put in place and the culture we created. Yeah. Yeah. Could you define 
the reason behind your success in that business? Do you think you've obviously had a few years to think about it since since leaving the organisation? You know, uh, retrospectively, do you look at any one thing or any approach in that business as being the the core fundamental reason for what you why you were about able to achieve what you achieved? No, I don't think there'd be one. I, I, pretty relentless about improvement would be if I was to capture it, that, yeah. that'd be it. Yeah, right. You know, relentlessly improving every aspect of what we did every day and mm. never taking the foot off the pedal and, yeah. yeah. In that role, you know, what could you define as the second most challenging thing that you uh, you experienced there? Uh, the second most? Um, regulators. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Talk us through that. I've got some questions coming. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, like what? So to, to sort of get some context, um, you know, we're just uh, – I've been campaigning pretty hard on lockout for um, – A long time. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and you know, this will go out in a little while, like a couple of weeks ago, a week ago or so, there's been a signal from government that we're going to see some change. So I mean, there's a whole host of regulatory issues that are, are stymieing the industry, which um, lockout uh, – Kind of tends to obscure what I think, um, and so I'm kind of keen to, to sort of, you know, yeah, get your insights on on, on what, what some of those regulatory barriers. Um, oh, I, I think, yeah. and particularly for Maryvale, it was it was difficult, and I, and I think a lot of that was was driven through you know properties like Ivy. Australia's never seen a property that holds four thousand people and five thousand people and. Um, is packed to the rafters three or four nights a week and, and uh, regulars don't know how to n- know what to think of that. Um, you know, if you had one assault over, you know, a, a two-week period, the way in which that was managed mm-hmm. and the mindset of, you know, the, the government forces to suggest that that it doesn't matter the scale of your property, um, the box are data suggests that you had 12 assaults over the years, so we're going to cut your business in half with, you know, regulation and limitations across your licence is absolutely absurd. You know, I think it was uh, about 4 million people go through IV a year. Jesus. To be, compa- to be comparing that to a pub that has 20,000 guests a year is, is They're not the same absurd. Thing. Yeah. Um, and young police officers aren't trying to work out what to do when they they walk into a site like that. They're not equipped to to walk in. And it's a very very different prospect to what you know was ever in Sydney prior to that. Yeah. Most yeah. establishments, big property. Ivy's very very different based. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and what followed from that? Some of the regulation, the box art thing was was that that was a. You know, full-time job in itself. Really, mm. offer a number of people, not not one individual. Yeah. That was probably two or three individuals full-time managing. You know, whether that be video footage and and statements, and that was just went on and on and on. Was that the core sort of regulatory um, overburden, or were there sort of multiple things um, you had on before I jumped in there? Um, they, they were probably the, the lockout was obviously a whole separate saga. Um, uh, well, council in early days were very difficult, but I think the more successful Justin became, um, the more uh, embracing council were to some of the things that he was trying to do across the city. And you know, I think we're, I'm not sure where that relationship sits today, but I would imagine it's very, very healthy. Um, yeah, they'd be they'd be the main ones. And, and just like if I can sort of stay on this topic just for a yeah. minute more, the, because of the time frame we're talking about, 2007 through to current day, also because of your uh, uh, growing up in Melbourne um, and, uh, and and working in hospitality in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, um, it's more specifically um, what I want to draw attention to. Like the the change in Sydney, um, 2007 to current day, how much of it is uh, attributable to? Uh, the regulatory overburden in its widest form, mm-hmm. and 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 how much is it just attributable to changing consumer habits? Do you think? Um, so specifically, there 
Yeah. What, what, so, 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 I mean, if um, people who uh, oversimplify things just go lockout came and just stuffed the city, that's what yep. you often hear. Um, other people might say things like, well, the way that we consume entertainment has changed. For example, Netflix, Uber, um, you can sort of sit at home, it's become great. It's a great offering at home these days, uh, um, and that never existed before. That, the latter part of that, if you buy into that, is universal between the two cities, Sydney and Melbourne, right? Like, you can have Netflix and Uber in Melbourne, yeah. you can have Netflix and Uber in Sydney. And uh, I guess, um, you know, the, the, as we sit potentially on the cusp of lockout being reversed in Sydney, um, the question is, will the market come back? You know, to, into to, our CBD, into, are we referring into, to? Yeah, into our CBD. Yeah. yeah. Or will people now sort of sit there and go, well, you know what, like, life's, um, pretty, easy. life's pretty easy. Or, um, or uh, you know, they've gone to other parts of the city, I suppose, the two other, two other things. Uh, look, if I was to compare, and it's a great comparison because I talk about this frequently, if you compare the CBD in Melbourne and CBD in Sydney, they're worlds apart. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah. Melbourne is just a hive of activity. People yeah. swarm the city. Yeah. You know, on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, they come into the CBD in Melbourne. They can't wait to get out. Corporate world can't wait to get out of the city yeah. on a Friday night. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a couple of bits. Of that. I think geographically there's the, the, the surrounding suburbs of Melbourne, um, how do I say this in a very... The, the surrounding inner city suburbs of Melbourne are exactly that, whereas I don't think we have that in Mel in Sydney. The eastern suburbs just want to get home to their eastern suburbs. Yeah. And then you've got a sprawl, which is not really in a city. There's there's so many separations between it. Um, and then you've got the sporting world of Melbourne. You've got mm. three major sporting stadiums in the CBD. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a phenomenal nightlife and there's just – and people – are drawn to the CBD, which grows business, more business opens. There's some very, very, very fine, you know, private single operators in Melbourne all over the city. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously when we talk about regulation and the regulation at which to open something in Melbourne is clearly there's not as many uh, barriers. Yeah. No, and, clearly and, not. Yeah. The yeah. speed at which you see development in Melbourne around, particularly in our industry and hospitality, it's, it's so quick. Yeah. You know, and we've got a laneway project going in Sydney that I think has been going since probably 2010. I, I'm not sure how many laneway activations we've actually got. Yeah. Because it's fine to build a laneway, but then you've got to be able to approve what somebody wants to put forward without needing to go through 37 red tapes. Yeah, mm. yeah. What about the influence of gaming versus, you know, in Melbourne? Because the Sydney, traditional Sydney pub that's got a pokey room out in the back yeah. and still does good food and beverage is obviously prominent. Um Melbourne, it's you've either got yep a shitload of machines or you've got none. So you kind no, of you're right there, and there are not too many suburbs in Melbourne where look. There are some venues that still do food and beverage well that have mm. gaming, um, but there are not very many suburbs in Melbourne where that works. But mm. if you look across Sydney, you know you could the whole of the CBD. I think there's only four or five pubs in Melbourne that have got in the CBD that have got gaming. Yeah. Um, which all do very well. Yeah. Um, the city here is full of it. Um, the outskirts, Crow's Nest, Northbridge, all do particularly well. Yeah. Like you can still do a great food and beverage offering. It's a yeah. shame that you can't do that both in Melbourne. Mm. Mm. It's, uh, it's, the, it's such a defining difference, I think, because Melbourne pubs without gaming obviously have to try a, l a lot harder around their referee in order to be competitive with the yeah. amazing restaurants there, whereas... Pubs like this that we're sitting in will pay for their wages and their rent if they're paying rent, um, probably through their gaming room. And Correct. then the rest of it is is cream, you know? Yep. So, um, And the clubs are very different in New South Wales. Yeah. So pubs in Melbourne with 105 machines and the clubs in Melbourne, you know, the funny little corner clubs with 30 machines. So it's, mm. it's almost flipped the way in which they conduct business down there, yeah. Preference for you in terms of the states that you operate across, where would you like to grow the most based on the ex your experience in those markets? Oh, I'd love to grow Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. I love the Sydney market and, and for some of the reasons we just spoke about, you know, with, with the labour model the way it is, mm. to have a little more gaming, balance the business 
um, and wash out some of the other costs would be really great. Yep. It allows you to, to make those, um, to take the risk and to reinvest um, knowing that you've got a little bit of a, a, um, a buffer. Yeah. Um, preference, Melbourne versus Sydney? For debate. what? For you. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a both at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you actually relocating? Are you um, going to? Is it? Yes, eventually. Right. Eventually, we will. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But um, for the interim, yeah, commuting. Right. I'm going to ask you another personal question. I hear you're a uh, an exceptional cook. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I fancy myself as a cook. Really? Yeah. What's your style? What's my style? My style is, uh, how would I describe my style? It's beautiful produce. Yep. Not overworked with lots of flavour. Right. Doing simple things really well. Does this come from trying to impress young women when you were uh, <laughs> younger? Is it might do. I can't recall that far back. Possibly. Right. Yeah. What's your? Uh, have you got a, a sort of a signature dish? Um, no, I wouldn't say I've got a signature dish. Yeah. No. Really. I'm known for a, a banging five course long lunch. Yeah. With exceptional wines from Masella. Yeah. So that would normally and usually Italian. Right. Usually Italian. Yeah. What's your signature wine then? What's the go-to that you pull out when you're, um, I don't know, you want the best bottle out of your cellar? <sighs> or a personal favourite, uh, Biondi Santi Brunello um, or a Contorno uh, Barbera. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Never had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> you should have brought a bottle today. I should have. <laughs> With a big Bistecca. Yeah. A Rangers Valley, 1.2 kilo. Cooked nice. on the barn, beautiful. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting when the evening comes. Watching the ships roll in, and then I watch them roll away again. Yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll. It's been wonderful chatting. We've got a few quick questions we'd like to uh, ask you just as we wrap up the podcast. Yeah, um, um, Favourite book that you've read recently or podcast you listen to regularly? Book, uh, Legacy. Yeah. Um, story of the All Blacks culture. And it touches on a lot of you know, the amazing principles of good to great. and but Just a beautifully written book and, yeah, on, on leadership and... Could, I don't think I've read another book that captures it so well. Yeah, right. What's mm. to the heart of the message? Creating great teams. How high-performing teams are created. Yeah. Some of the principles around that. And, and the, I suppose the first essence of it is um, the, that moment of truth where the All Blacks realised um, that they need to pull apart what they're doing and have a closer look and... Um, Funnily enough, they came and stole the culture from the swans. I didn't realise. Did yeah, yeah, right. Came here, which is yeah, which is um, um, that leading teams guy as well, isn't it? Um, That's who we use. Yeah, yeah Gary. Yeah, yeah, the Gary. Gary uh, was uh, created that over the first five years of the, the Bloods culture there. Yeah, yeah. Since we've mentioned cricket, like uh, you know, you've got the Ashes series. Yes, um, we talk on this for hours. Go yeah, for it. yeah. Well, um, this is not one of the standard questions, by the way. But <laughs> given your your background, the All Blacks, like in terms of the Australian team performance, like you know, there's been a they've had a few issues, shall we say, uh, in the last couple of years, and looks like we've retained the Ashes. Well, we have retained the Ashes. Like, what do you make of that in terms of teams? Yeah, look, I think. Um, the, the, uh, the team that was leading that organisation would stand for just about everything that I don't think sport should. Right. Um, and I think they've made some wonderful appointments with Langer. Um, I think having Steve War associated with his tour is, is my idol. Yeah. I think it's the best thing that could possibly happen for Australian cricket. Um, I think Troy Cooley back um, mm. as the bowling coach has been, the way they're bowling... Um, that's been the difference. They've bowled yeah. their way to the ashes. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 and Steve Smith. And Steve Smith, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> Just a I'll, cheeky I'll, 300 run through. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bike test. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, um, but, you know, but there's also the issue about, you know, his role when he's now he's not captaining, you know, like he, he may have freed him up to just do what he does really well and those sorts of things. You can't, I mean, he's, you can't say someone like that's not captaining even though they haven't got the title, right? Like yeah, he's, he, he, he he's pulling be, a lot of strings out there, yeah. 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 I mean, just the, the, the leadership that he'd be delivering. I get by title and by probably some of the activities yeah. that he's genuinely doing, but... Um, it's been a great series, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been awesome. I don't know about this test and... I don't know in about terms of their winning the last night. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> You'd probably just want to get Smith in there to put the pressure on them um, with another couple of tons. And mm. <laughs> well, what are you uh, thinking about um, uh, Collingwood's chances? Ooh, Brendan's um, yeah, Let's just say an avid Collingwood supporter. <laughs> I can't actually watch them. No. Did I tell you that? Yeah. I have to record it. If they win, I'll watch it. <laughs> 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 and unfortunately, my brother and my father are identical. So right. I can't watch it. I'm by that. I can watch the Swans, but it's just I, I sit there and wonder why I do because it just it's like watching the Wallabies for me. My heart rate is just <laughs> yeah. a million miles an hour, and yeah. I'm, it's, it's probably a good stressful. way to lose some weight, mate. Yeah. Maybe we should jump into it. What yeah. are you saying? No, I'm talking about myself. Do you think uh, what are, what's their chance? Do you think it should be them? I'm just looking at the draw. I would suggest it's going to be them v Richmond or v West Coast. Yeah. In which case they stack up pretty well. Probably Richmond. Yeah. Collingwood doesn't have a great track record winning grand finals. <laughs> We're pretty good at getting it. We're playing in more than anyone. Uh, my father told me the other day, Colling has lost 29 grand finals. Right. <laughs> so we're going at about 30%, little right. under 30%. So, yeah, it doesn't bode well, does it? Depends which Collingwood turns up on the day. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. If it's the same Collingwood that knocked out Richmond last year in the... Oh, that'd be that brilliant, would be fucking phenomenal. Yeah, it would be. Brilliant. Um, we were talking about uh, the overall experience earlier coming into your house growing up when your um, parents were catering. Music plays an important part of experience. Musically, favourite ar- album or artist uh, you're listening to? Or, or oh, favourite artist, Otis Redding. Oh. Um... Something I'm listening to recently only because I think his voice is just uh, unbelievable is Gregory Porter. Um, uh, coming back from Melbourne yesterday, it was Gregory Porter, uh, one night with Gregory Porter and he was he was doing Nat King Cole at, with the uh, London Orchestra. It was unbelievable. Yeah, right. The man's voice is... It is worth watching... That when you're next on a flight, yeah, or um, yeah, awesome. We can link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, we've we've got a few wine recommendations off you earlier in the podcast, yeah. but um, uh, beverage trend wise, um, anything that's got you right at the moment um, that you're interested in? It's pretty hard not to be um, interested in craft beer world when. We own a brewery. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, just the speed and uh, the craft brewers, and mm. you know, walking through a walking through South Melbourne Market last week, and we're a craft brewer. We're a bloody great craft brewer. Our product's great. I think we're the fourth or fifth biggest brewer in Australia now. And walking through this this uh, South Melbourne Market, and there's a little craft uh, beer shop in there, and I said, "Have you got any Colonial?" Mm. This guy said. Yeah, typical hipster. No, we only do craft beers. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been around longer than six months, you're no longer in the scene, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. Give us a break. Yeah. Um, yeah, the craft beer world's very interesting. It's gone way further than anyone expected. It doesn't seem to be slowing down. Same with the gin world. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of uh, the non-alcoholic spirits category? And beer category, which is blowing up at the moment. Are you guys doing an alcoholic beer? No. Will you? <laughs> Not <laughs> it's, it's huge at the moment. Like we're, we've um, the amount of research we've done on that recently, and the number of non-alcoholic brands that are presenting craft products that tastes like you would have a colonial like Europe, a high yeah. IPA or an XPA, but it's zero alcohol, so it's got flavour to it. It's not that watery zero alcohol cookie yeah. shit that. It's been around forever. It's it's got its market for us in Perth, that's for sure. So one of our biggest properties in Perth 
in Brookfield Place. You know, mm. There's, there's 8,000 PHP employees in the mm. building next door and our lunch tribe has gone, has dropped off the planet because they have an absolute zero alcohol policy. Yeah. Right. So 8,000 customers on your door, no longer. Yeah. yeah that's, so, yeah, and that's, that's, you that's send me a few of them. Yeah. Zero beers. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. brew some. You own a brewery, man. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and uh, um, you can either give us – well, give us your favourite venue of all time, I think, um, and wow. and then your favourite venue right now that's not one of your own. Favourite venue of all time? Anywhere in the world as well. Yeah, it would have to be um, the Amman. Grand Canal Hotel in Venice. Is this the one you stayed at recently? It's a couple of years ago, right. yeah. At one best luxury hotel in the world and mm. stayed there with the girl, both Izzy and Iris, uh, probably three or four years ago, and it was something else. I've never walked into it. It was 20 rooms in an old palace and it wow. had uh, probably 10 or 12 Amazing, luxurious public spaces, and you could just go and sit there and pick up the phone, and they'd just come running from everywhere. Yeah. But it was every, it was the interior was fit out by BB Italia, so you imagine the cost that would have come with that. But it was so tastefully done. Mm. It's, um, wow, worth a trip. Worth a trip. And currently? Currently. Where would you go for a beer? Where would I go for a beer? That's a really good question. Um, I do like... Uh, I love the pubs in the South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, Middle Park area in Melbourne. Anywhere with an open fire and a cold. What was the one I met you in? The Cricketers. That's a great little pub. Yeah. Really good. Yes. That area, the pubs in that, um, Middle Park was my favourite pub to of all time. Strong, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we we all feel my favourite <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually uh, I had a haircut across the road from there the other day. Oh, uh, yeah, the barbers. And, uh, and I walked across the road and I thought, oh, I might just drop in for a beer here. And this was, that was the... Uh, oh, that's what's happened to it. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> Just a lazy, uh, I think it's 13 empty glasses on the table, one smashed wine glass. It's <laughs> not one round of drinks that's sat there, is it? <laughs> All I can say is that I'm glad it wasn't the timeout team. We used to live, uh, our office used to be next door to the Middle Park Hotel. So oh, really? We've, we've since moved, so that one's not on me. Um, in other times may have been. Uh, and and last, last one, really interested in your reply to this one. Who in the industry are you most inspired by and why? Um, I think um, inspired by a number of people for different reasons. Um, I, I still love Justin's um, style, fit out style. Um, he's got a beautiful, you know, he's a very stylish person he, and he's, his venues are beautifully fit out and he's got a wonderful eye. So I'm still inspired by his fit outs. Um, Still inspired by Neil Perry, you know, he, the food he cooks is, is beautiful. Obviously, it's probably he can't showcase what he really wants to do because of um, the scale of what he's doing at the moment. But, yeah, pretty hard not to be inspired by, you know, his, his love of beautiful produce and, mm. and the man can cook. <laughs> so probably those two. Yeah. Old school. Well... I think we've uh, been sitting here listening to, you know, for men of a certain age at least, and I'm sure many others, like a great um, walk through, you know, the origins of your own hospitality journey and you've struck some fine notes, which I'm sure we've both struck a call with Luke and I listening yeah. to the bottles of wine, the young ladies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fast cars. <laughs> I heard a rumour, and you know where it's coming from, that when you were an area manager with ALH, you used to rock around in a Porsche 911. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine rocking up to meet the GM of one of the pubs that you're running. You just pull up in your Porsche 911. 
Yeah, it probably wasn't the right basketball fit for <laughs> just, just ahead of your time. <laughs> what is right? Did you end up getting a new car? Yeah. What did you get? Uh, the um, Mercedes GLE 63. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's great. Best car I've ever driven. Just a bit sluggish though, aren't they? They're so slow. <laughs> <laughs> and they sound really yeah, ordinary. Yeah, they sound horrible. <laughs> Mate, thank you so much for giving me your time. It was uh, awesome. Thanks for the chat. No, no worries. Thank you. Luke, we've just finished chatting with Brett. Standout points, highlights, what do you think? Uh, look, I just find his um, his focus and attention to detail around leadership and building teams in large organisations is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, not only hearing it from him, but obviously seeing the results, uh, as most of Sydney, you know, have have probably felt the results of, of a lot of the work that he has done in organisations. You know, you don't have people executing to the standard to which they have executed in businesses he's looked after without an approach like the one that he's adopted. So, um, I just think he's a he's a really impressive guy, to be honest. Yeah. What about yourself? Anything from your end? Yeah, I'm like I known him by reputation. Uh, it was the first time I met him and um, I think I'll, my, my takeaway really is I guess that hard but fair mm. approach, you know, like you sort of get that speaking honest, to him. It's honesty, right? Like I think that for me, and he mentioned that in terms of giving feedback, like some people would look at honesty as being harsh, but I think with him it's just honesty, it's just, you know, real, um, nothing hidden, it's visibility around what he's thinking and, 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 you know, if that's applied correctly then you get a good outcome with leadership topics. Yeah, so um, I, uh, I really value that insight really um, and I think, uh, uh, as you say, anyone who's been around those businesses building teams over a long period of time that have ultimately gone and produced success in many other organisations. Mm. Uh, it's just a lesson in management, whether you're in hospitality or in another business. Totally.